The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so the topic for today that we're going to look at is um, the path or the way or the method um, that the Buddha taught. All of those words are translations of the word maga um, and the, the training that he taught. So the Buddha taught a complete path of practice. He, um, he showed a way that leads from our current state of spiritual development, whatever it is, toward greater liberation. So wherever, start wherever you are, and um, he would offer ways to, to advance along the path. But there isn't just one path. There's a whole system of training. I think I would call it a system of training that's presented in a variety of ways in the, in the texts, okay, depending on the context and the people who were listening. So, you know, when you hear the path, a lot of people think the Eightfold Path. That's what the Buddha taught. It's the Fourth Noble Truth, etc. Um, but is this the whole story? And actually you'll find, no, there's lots of paths offered in the, in the text. The Eightfold Path is one of them. It came to be uh, categorized later. Um, but we're going to look at a couple of these. I have another handout for you here. So, um, take one of these. We're going to start with, we will start with the eight-hole path. Okay, I'll wait till people have them. Oh, this will be my opportunity for those of you who are listening to this recorded uh, while people are taking the handout. Um, I gave a historical overview and an overview of the canon and unfortunately forgot to record that. So I guess it was you had to be here. So we are now turning to the topic for today, which is to look at the system of training that the Buddha offered. And we're going to read um, starting from... Uh, a text in the Samyutta Nikaya, yeah? So remember this big one? If I were to look in this book under the Samyutta, called, I believe it's called the Maga Samyutta, number 45, it's going to be number one. Let's see if I can find that. Yes, the Maga Samyutta. Yep. So, 45.1 would be found in here, for example. But we're going to read off this piece of paper, so it's a little easier. Now, the way um, you're going to learn, the way this goes in this class, is that we're going to read these texts out loud. So who would like to begin reading this? Yeah, please. Just start, thus I have heard. Yep. Thus I have heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Zavati in Jedda's Grove at the Pandika's Park. There the Blessed One addressed the Bhikkhunis, thus Bhikkhunis. Okay. It didn't come out that great. <laughs> That's no problem. That was great. That was great. So I'm, we're going to stop there for a moment, actually. Okay. Um, so... First of all, the very first sentence that you read, thus have I heard, um, 
every sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya and many, some, some of the suttas in the Samyutta begin with, thus have I heard. And this is an interesting phrase. Um, why, you know, why do we have this? I see it a number of different ways. It's, um, it basically says that this text was something that was recorded. It's uh, usually um, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, is said to be the person who said this. Um, it was the uh, Buddha's primary attendant for the later part of his life. And he apparently had an excellent memory and could literally remember everything. This is how it's said. He literally remembered word for word what he heard from the Buddha. And so um, these texts that have been written down were what Ananda spoke at the first council when he was reciting the entire Pali Canon. He was the first one who, had, who memorized all the Buddha's teachings. And so a lot of these begin with, thus have I heard. And um, I like the honesty of it. It doesn't say, it doesn't actually say, this is what the Buddha said. It said, this is what I heard. <laughs> See the difference? Now, I don't think we have any reason to doubt Ananda. He became an arhant, and he was likely a stream enterer for much of the time he was recording things, or memorizing things. But um, nonetheless, uh, I like the honesty of this. Okay, so then we have a little uh, section. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park. So that is the place reference, basically. So a lot of these have a context to them. Samyutta Nikaya, it's usually pretty brief. But uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, there might be a whole setup of who he's talking to and a story about how they came together. So you don't need to know the details of who these people are, but Anattapindika was a, the Buddha's main patron. He was a wealthy banker. And... Um, Jetta's Grove, there's a story about Prince Jetta um, donating this grove. There was kind of a, a story around how that happened. So this tells, just tells you where the teaching took place. And it says there, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, thus bhikkhus. Bhikkhu means monk. Um, and so then, this is a very standard way to begin a sutta. And then it says, venerable sir, venerable sir those bhikkhus replied. So that's also very standard. So who would like to continue reading with the Blessed One said this? Okay, go ahead. The Blessed One said this, because ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states, with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. For an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. For one of wrong view, wrong intention springs up. For one of wrong intention, wrong sp speech springs up. For one of wrong speech, wrong action springs up. For one of wrong action, wrong livelihood springs up. For one of wrong livelihood, wrong effort springs up. For one of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness springs up. For one of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration springs up. Okay, thank you. So, um, this is, does anybody recognize this sequence? Yeah, what is it? Yeah, it's the Noble Eightfold Path. And there's a little bit of um, uh, preamble to that. He says, ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states, with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. So this uh, gives a little bit of the context of, of him saying this. So he's talking about ignorance as the fundamental cause of you know, why things are going wrong, basically. Um, it's interesting to me. I don't know why he says shamelessness is fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. That's a common 
uh, phrase that he'll say is that these things go along with unwise actions, that you're not concerned about the effect of your action, essentially. Um, so you're ignoring the principle of karma. Uh, um, but I don't know why he says it in this particular sutta. He, he, it, it's not clear from the context why he needs to teach that. But then you know, he basically says ignorance um, uh, results in wrong view, and wrong view results in wrong intention, and so forth. Um, what do you notice about this, like how that sequence unfolds? I know it's very repetitive, but you know what's the what's the overall sense of that? That one causes the next. Yeah, it's very linear. Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, this is the way the teaching is presented here. It's one following the other. Well, let's just read the last um, paragraph. Who would like to read that one? I'm going to pick someone. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, would you read that one? Sure. Um, Bhikkhus, true knowledge is the forerunner in the entry upon wholesome states, with a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing following along. For a wise person who has arrived at true knowledge, right view springs up. For one of right view, right intention springs up. For one of right intention, right speak right speech springs up. For one of right speech, right action springs up. For one of right action, right livelihood springs up. For one of right livelihood, right effort springs up. For one of right effort, right mindfulness springs up. For one of right mindfulness, right concentration springs up. Beautiful. So it's very similar to the previous paragraph. It's just turned around. Mm -hmm. This is a common pattern in suttas in general, and particularly in the Samyutta Nikaya, is that you have this repetition of um, kind of chunks of material that um, are following a pattern. In fact, the introduction to this um, book, which, by the way, Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote wonderful introductions to each of these books. They're 10 or 20 pages long, and they talk all about what's going on with that book and the teachings in it. And for the introduction to the Samyutta Nikaya, he talks um, a lot about the um, templates that are used in this text. And it's true. It's like it starts with each chapter starts with kind of one template, and then it will repeat. There's like a Four Noble Truths template and a um, uh, gratification, danger, and escape template and so forth. Um, that go on. And this this template of having kind of the wrongness and then the rightness one after the other is also kind of a pattern that you'll see. So if you have a sort of an analytical organized mind, the Samyutta is also kind of a nice text. It will feel satisfying, I think. But this is a very, so this is a very linear, um, direct view of the Eightfold Path unfolding. And one thing I notice about this is that there's not a lot of instruction there. It's kind of more just informative. It's, you know, it's telling you this is how these things are related. I think that's why this is called the connected discourses. In my, you know, don't, I wouldn't write this in a scholarly article without better evidence, but my experience from reading it is that um, this is telling you how the different teachings are connected together. 
And so, I mean, of course, there are things that are, each chapter is things that are connected to a certain teaching, or connect, you know, connected to feeling tone, connected to dependent origination. But throughout each chapter and throughout the text, it explains, like, how are the Four Noble Truths related to the Eightfold Path? And what are the factors that are most relevant when you're working on feeling tone? Well, instead of giving a list, you just sort of get it by the tag cloud associated with all the suttas around feeling tone, is that they all tend to have certain things related to them. So, a lot, of, a lot of it's about the connections. Okay, so without... Um, let's go on to another text so that we have something to chew on as a comparison. So we're going to read now the um, Mangala Sutta, which is also about the path, and this is in the other SN. Notice that capital S, capital N, Samyutta Nikaya, capital S, little n, Sutta Nipata. Okay? Um, 2.4, so chapter 2, um, sutta number 4 in this book. Um, that's the minor chapter, yes, here it is. This is one of my, so here it is, the Mahamangala Sutta. This is actually one of my favorite suttas. I really like this one. And what we're using is not the translation in this Sadatisa book, we're using the one uh, from Amaravati because they actually chant this. This is a chant that's done by monks, often in Pali, but sometimes in English. So, um, we'll read this one also. We're going to only need two volunteers to read this one. We'll do it in two pieces. So, who would like to read the beginning? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I've heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying at Savati at Jeddah's Grove, Anathapindika's Park. Then a certain Devada, in the far extreme of the night, her extreme radiance lighting up the entirety of Jeddah's Grove, approached the Blessed One. On approaching, having bowed down to the Blessed One, she stood to one side. As she was standing there, she addressed a verse to the Blessed One. Many divas and human beings give thought to good fortune, desiring well-being. Tell then, what is the highest blessing? Okay, we'll stop there for now. Mangala means blessing, or... Uh, fortunate occurrence. Um, and so this has a little bit more mm, richness to the scene that's created, right? So uh, let's, let's get that in our heads. So it's the same place, Savati, Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park. <laughs> so this was a popular place. The Buddha was there a lot. Um, a, a Devata is... Uh, my understanding is that it is a young deva. <laughs> and a deva is a being that's um, a heavenly being. Some people liken them to angels, but I think that puts an unnecessary Christian spin on it. Um, there are beings that have been reborn in fortunate circumstances due to good karma. They have often very long lives. They're very beautiful and radiant. They experience a lot of pleasure etc. So it's a good good life, but not a free one. And in this um, in this understanding, uh, it's not liberation. So you know, devas still have to practice if they want to be free. And they may, when their good fortune ends, they end up somewhere else. <laughs> so heaven is not eternal. Um, so a devata is a young deva. And so she's beautiful. She appears uh, in Jeddah's Grove. And devas are often uh, reverent to the Buddha. They love his teachings. They find it wonderful and nourishing. And they're often um, 
come and ask interesting questions to him. The Buddha is said to be a teacher of devas and humans. So she comes and she bows and stands to one side. That is a stock phrase that you'll, that a stock idea. It's not exactly always in this phrase, but people who come to the Buddha often uh, give some kind of a, an address or a bow and then they stand to one side. And that's a standard phrase for, I'm going to ask a question. You know, I'm, I'm, I've come to engage with you. I'm respectfully standing to the side. And so then she says, um, Many devas and human beings give thought to good fortune, desiring well-being. Tell then what is the highest blessing. So she basically says, how can we get what we want in life? How can we have a happy life, well-being, whatever that means to a person or a deva? And so um, it's a straightforward question, and the Buddha is going to give his answer. And that's the rest of the sutta. So it goes um, the rest of this page and onto the back, and it's a series of verses. Who would like to read those? Yeah, go ahead. Not concerning with fools, concerning with the wise, paying homage to those who deserve homage. This is the highest blessing. Living in a civilized country, having made merit in the past, directing oneself rightly, this is the highest blessing. Broad knowledge, skill, discipline, well-mastered, words well-spoken. This is the highest blessing. Support for one's parents, assistance to one's wife and children, jobs that are not left unfinished. This is the highest blessing. Generosity, living by the Dhamma, assistance to one's relatives, deeds that are, deeds that are blameless. This is the highest blessing. Avoiding, abstaining from evil, refraining from intoxicants, being uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind. This is the highest blessing. Respect, humility, contentment, gratitude, hearing the Dhamma on timely occasions. This is the highest blessing. Patience, composure, seeing contemplatives. Uh, discussing the Dhamma on timely occasions. This is the highest blessing. Austerity, celibacy, seeing the noble truths, realizing liberation. This is the highest blessing. A mind that, when touched by the ways of the world, is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. This is the highest blessing. Everywhere undefeated when doing these things, people go everywhere, everywhere in well-being. This is their highest blessing. Great. Thank you. Sure. So, wow. <laughs> it kind of, yeah, it was a lot. And I, I understand it's hard to absorb all that at once, so we're going to look more carefully, though, right. at what's going on here. So at a top level, first of all, can you feel that this is a very different kind of sutta than the, than the first one we looked at? Yes. This is verse, um, which is another form of teaching that the Buddha offers. And this upper one, um, the first one we read uh, with the springing up, um, is sort of an analytical sutta. It's telling about what's related to what. And here we have this more poetic expression. So let's see if we can delve into that a little bit. You might just notice, by the way, in your mind, how different those feel. They actually work on different parts of the mind, one on the more intellectual part, one a little bit. Yeah. 
I don't know what's going on in your brain exactly, but <laughs> for me, they they work on different parts, and so, and that's good. I think it, I think it's good to have the Dharma entering through as many doors as we can. Goodness knows we need it. <laughs> so, um, it starts out. Each of these is a repeated paragraph that ends in "This is the highest blessing," because this is what the Devata asked: "What is the highest blessing?" So he tells her. Um, not consorting with fools, consorting with the wise, paying homage to those who deserve homage. So, um, this has to do with just making a basic, simple, correct choice about where you spend your time. Um, spend time with people who are wise, not with people who are foolish. It's actually, you'll see this in other suttas. One of the first things that the Buddha says is that wise friendship is the first foundation for being able to support your practice. You have to have other people around who think in that same way. Okay, and then, you know, knowing who is wise and who isn't, so you pay homage to the right people. Which path factor is this most related to? I don't know. I don't know that there's an exact answer to that. I'm leading you towards something, of course. This is partly Kim's interpretation of this sutta, but partly... From practice, it was from practice. So this is this is may I suggest um, potentially related to right view, the view that um, it's good to pay attention to uh, to be with people who are wise and not with people who are foolish. This is a simple karmic understanding of things that are good. I should move toward things that aren't so good. I should not be with. Living in a civilized country, having made merit in the past, directing oneself rightly, broad knowledge. Well, let's stop with this. I don't know about the living in a civilized country, having made merit in the past. There's nothing you can do about that, but this is maybe pointing to the element that we don't have total control (laughs) um, over, uh, at this moment, we don't have any control over what's arising in this moment. You know, we've gotten here and this is the only thing that can be happening at this moment, but from here, what can we do? We can direct ourselves rightly. So, and we can also count the blessing, by the way, that we are living in a civilized country, having the claim is that that's because we made merit in the past. I don't know, you may or may not believe that. But truly, um, did you have a comment? Maybe it's just saying that being in the civilized country is a blessing. It is. Like yes. Yeah. It like, is. Like. For sure. And we can count that as a blessing here. I mean, there are places in the world where there's war, where there's uh, people are living mostly in poverty, where they don't have access to texts, um, they don't have access to teachers. What an amazing blessing that we have to be in this room right now. We don't always recognize that. So then, we won't go through everyone in detail, but there's a, several verses now about knowledge, skill, discipline, well mastered. Oh, let me go back to directing oneself rightly. So that has a little bit to do with intention, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are things that you have to do. So you should have um, some kind of a craft or a discipline in the world, and you should speak well, support one's parents, assistance to one's wife and children, jobs that are not left unfinished, Basic integrity in your life. Uh, You finish what you start, you have good relationships with the people around you. Um, Generosity, living by the Dhamma, assistance to one's relatives, deeds that are blameless. 
this is starting to sound like um, ethics, ethical conduct, right? Right speech, right action, right livelihood are uh, contained, not exactly in that order, but this section to me sounds like how to be in the world in a way that is non-harming, in a way that is conducive to practice. And it doesn't say anything about sitting on the cushion yet, um, but it just says you should be a good person, you should live your life well, you should have some honor in what you do. This this is a blessing if you can pull this off. (laughs) Then um, we get to avoiding, abstaining from evil, refraining from intoxicants, being uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind. What? (laughs) Qualities of the mind? So we've changed. There's a shift in this stanza from they're still avoiding evil, refraining from intoxicants. That's that's an action. It's the fifth precept. Um, But then uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind. So uh, being noticing at this point that the mind is important uncomplacent with regard to qualities of the mind. So yeah, I'm living my life well, but what about what's going on in my head and my heart? Um, I may have perfected or restrained my action in some way, but we all know that we can act externally in ways that are not in alignment with our mind yet. We can force our body to do things. Not that there's no indication here that somebody is forcing themselves to do something against their own will, but The implication is your work isn't finished once you've uh, done well in the world, uh, sort of gotten that part under control. Then there's the mind. And we move to respect, humility, contentment, gratitude, hearing the Dhamma on timely occasions. This is the highest blessing. Entirely internal qualities. Yeah? So it's shifted to something that's more in the realm of meditation or internal development, bhavana practice, development of the mind and the development of the heart. Hearing the Dhamma, this is um, helpful. If we don't hear the Dhamma, we can't understand, we can't hear about the Four Noble Truths, for example. We can't hear about the potential for liberation. So you can hear a lot of teachings about good karma, about living well in the world. Every religion offers an ethical code for how to be in the world. so this is where it points a little bit toward uh, hearing something that's different from actually just from daily life or even from living well. You hear the Dharma, that's about letting go of suffering. That's about really liberating the mind, not just, not only uh, living uh, a simple, a correct lay life, if you will. So then we get to patience, composure, seeing contemplatives, discussing the Dhamma on timely occasions. So, um, more internal qualities, uh, s- seeking out teachers, and discussing the Dhamma. So, coming, making the Dhamma uh, something that you're actively practicing, you're participating in, um, you're asking questions about it, maybe talking about it with other practitioners, maybe now you have Dharma friends. So, this is quite uh, a new step to go into this level you can see that a lot more people are um, maybe could live and work well in the world, and then a sort of a smaller number might uh, continue on and develop the mind. And then we get to austerity, celibacy, seeing the noble truths, and realizing liberation. So that is um, 
moving into the realm, deep into meditation, right, is to be able to um, to do the kind of renunciation practice. I mean, it sounds like retreat to me, essentially. I don't know that he's saying whether or not he's saying anything about celibacy in terms of. <laughs> I don't think celibacy is required for. Um, at least the initial parts of liberation, and that's clear from other texts. So don't get hung up on that particular word. It's actually a translation of brahmacharya, which is sometimes um, celibacy and sometimes just kind of holy life or contemplative life. Okay. Um, so yeah, so we have moving into right mindfulness, right concentration. So these are the very you know, farther along steps in the path, in my interpretation. And then the uh, the second to last stanza, a mind that when untouched by the ways of the world is unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure. These are words that are used to describe Nibbana. So this would be my interpretation is that this is an arahant. Yeah? And then, um, and then he says, this is it. After this, um, one goes everywhere in well-being. Notice that it doesn't end with our hardship. That's not the last <laughs> paragraph. Why do you think there's one more after that? What's going on there? It has to be manifested in the world. Yeah. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, I think that's a great interpretation. One possibility, and there may be others, is that uh, the realization itself is, of course, the liberation of the mind. But then after that, life goes on, and one <laughs> one lives. It's not like a big letdown. Don't worry. If the suffering's gone, it's gone. <laughs> but um, you, um, you live in the world, and uh, it says... This is, um, you then become able to just walk through the world, be untouched by it. And, you know, there's, it would be over-interpreting to say that one goes out and teaches or manifests and, or does compassionate actions. That's, those are later interpretations, later things that have been added. But, you know, it says that you know, this is not the evaporation of the person. There's still, you actually then become this, you're, you're still a person. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you know there's no such thing as a being, but you are a being. It's one of those things. Yeah, so so this would be like the equivalent of my commentary on this sutta. I'm not saying there's no um, you know, established understanding that this sutta is about, is, is translating the Eightfold Path, but I think it's pretty clear. Uh, it, this is a one possible interpretation very different, much more poetic, much more qualitative. It's not as linear. It's not about this brings up that or spring, this springs up from that. But I'm curious what, um, and yet it describes you know, a complete system of training. It's going to touch every aspect of your life, from your views and thoughts to your ethical actions through the development of the mind. Are there comments on having read these two different versions of the training? from very different parts of the Pali Canon. How do they strike you? The second one gives more detail. Mm. The second one gives more detail, because it has examples, right? You can sort of grasp onto what what does it really mean practically. Yeah, I I hear that also. 
other impressions? There's no uh, right or wrong answers here. Do you find the second one more inspiring? Yeah, the second one is more inspiring to you. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you relate to them differently somehow. Yeah, um, that makes sense to me as it's a difference between how verse comes in and how analysis comes in, to my mind at least. Um, yeah, yeah. It was helpful though once you you kind of broken the second one down into categories, or this is mapped to the full path. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. If I if we wouldn't have had that, at least for me, um, it would have been a little bit more difficult to understand. And uh-huh. it would at on first reading, it was a a little bit all over the place in my mind. Yeah. So kind of a combination of the two was nice. This was helpful. Okay. Yeah. This is a great thing about studying the suttas is that um, sometimes it's not that clear actually what a sutta is about um, or what it's saying or it may seem to say something but then that seems inconsistent with something else that I know and so I wonder um, and I found that at times like that it's um, that's actually really useful and really interesting is that maybe I don't understand this quite yet or I haven't quite integrated this teaching and there may be, you know, there may be other ways to relate to this particular sutta, but um, uh, I found that over time, as I've read more and more in the canon, I start to be able to see, oh, this is, this sounds like a description of the system of training. I wonder how it relates to the other ones that I know, for example, or um, you just start to see patterns in them, and people will see different patterns. And this is saying a little bit about how my mind works. But I would agree with you is that um, it's maybe picking up something that you said. I find it useful to read the really analytical ones and the more story-like ones and the more verse-like ones um, just to get kind of a balanced view, like a balanced diet <laughs> of reading. And I love that the, um, the canon has these very different styles in it, you know. And you can then start to go to the ones that seem inspiring. It's like, oh, I need some verse tonight, or, or I'm feeling a little confused. I would love to read some of these nice ones that just tell me how it is. <laughs> you know, these nice, clear ones. Okay, so those are two suttas that, one for sure, and the other one potentially, are kind of about this eightfold path that was um, systematized at some point. Obviously, the later one is much more... The, I slipped into saying later one. It's likely that the Samyutta is a later collection on average, and the Sutta Nipata is where the verse came from, is considered one of the some of the suttas in here are very early. I don't I can't speak for all of them, but I know some of them, for example, are about wandering ascetics. They don't even refer to a monastic sangha. So it's potentially a ta- from a time when there were mostly just scattered monks, not so many together. Um, whereas, you know, in here they have things like the Buddha gave a lecture and 500 bhikkhus were enlightened. <laughs> it's like, okay, this, things were developed by the time this happened. Okay, so we're going to go on now to um, uh, a description of a system of training that isn't the Eightfold Path. Okay, um, this is an excerpt that I've pulled out from um, MN70, that means Majima Nikaya, so this red one, 
Um, that's the one that's got the, the middle-length discourses that were likely directed at uh, new monastics. Um, and I've pulled out two little sections of it that describe this. Uh, would somebody like to read um, these two paragraphs? Yeah, Mick. One anyway. Because I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. <clears throat> On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And how is final knowledge achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress? Here one has faith in a teacher. Who, one who has faith in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respect to him. When he pays attention, uh, respect to him, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it. He examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective uh, acceptance of those teachings. When he has gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, zeal springs up in him. When zeal springs up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives, resolutely striving. He realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. Thank you. That was so this is different, right? Um, this is directed at the monks, so he says, bhikkhus, I do not say. So he's talking to monks. So first of all, let's just, let's get some orientation here. I know these things are kind of, it's another long sequence. I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. What does the word final knowledge mean? Is that awakening? Yes. So that's a. Um, it's there's a lot of words that are used for awakening. Final knowledge is one. Uh, you'll hear liberation. These are tr different translations, of, and there are different Pali words: mm -hmm. liberation, awakening, enlightenment, nibbana, um, these kinds of things. And so he says, you don't get there all at once. You have to practice, and it's a path. I'm offering you a path. Um, this is different, by the way, than some Buddhist schools, notably later ones, say that um, uh, enlightenment is a sudden experience. Now, I don't think any of them say that it just comes suddenly with no practice. Uh, but there's, um, he, he, uh, the Buddha here actually describes the various steps of the path in a sort of an explicit way. And he begins... Um, he says, how has this come about? You know, what is this gradual training? So this, by the way, is a general teaching that's called the gradual training. And this is one version of it, and there's actually a, a, not, at least one other standard version of the gradual training that is not the Eightfold Path. So here, um, it starts with what? What's the first step? Finding a teacher. Finding a teacher, and in particular, what quality? Having faith in a teacher. Yeah. It's interesting. 
Um, that word faith, by the way, is a translation of the Pali word sadha, um, which is also sometimes translated as confidence or conviction or trust. It's kind of all of those things wrapped up together. Sometimes people hear the word faith, and if they had a Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. upbringing, that has a particularly association with that word. But the meaning is more like trust or confidence. You know, a sense of this has value or worth to me enough that I'm going to put some of my life energy into it. (laughs) So faith in a teacher. Actually, you'll notice that I've learned from seeing enough other suttas that faith is very often listed as the foundation. You just have to have that. At some level, you have to believe that this is valuable. (laughs) Otherwise, how are you going to make any effort? Right? <laughs> so, so he has faith in a teacher, and then what happens next? Spends time with him. Yeah, spends time. He visits, he pays respect. Um, and then uh, what, what happens between the teacher and the student? There's some uh, blessing, I guess, the Dhamma. Yeah, so he hears the Dhamma, and there's several steps about that, uh, giving ear, hearing the Dhamma, and so he receives teachings, essentially. I guess this is all, uh, yes, this is all in the he. We could say he or she. (laughs) Um, But, so basically it says, out of faith, you find somebody who can tell you something about this. (laughs) And notice there's nothing here yet about... Uh, meditation, there's not even anything yet about ethical conduct except paying respect. Respecting a teacher, that sounds a little bit like, going back to the Mangala Sutta, paying homage to those who deserve homage, not consorting with fools, consorting with the wise, right view. So who you spend your time with. Here it says spend your time with a teacher. You get these. You start to see these themes you know, over the course of practice. There's no magic formula. You have to somehow find somebody who's worth listening to, listen to them, and do what they say. That's basically what you learn again and again, but it just has a different form in different suttas, right? So he visits, he hears the Dharma, and then what happens to this person? What, um, what are the next steps? Well, it's interesting. He memorizes it mm-hmm. even before he examines the meaning of the teachings. Mm-hmm. That's right. So he memorizes it, yeah. Wow. Why do you think that is? I think by memorizing it, it, it you, you're going back to that trust, and it goes to the heart. I think you, you, you know, There's some need to take it in somehow. To take it in, to really take it in. I think that that's a nice way of saying it. Did anyone else have other impressions? Why no books? There were no books, so yeah, so it wasn't like they're looking at a book. So he memorizes it by listening, and then if he wants to remember it later and think about it, he's going to have to have it memorized. It's maybe a practical reason, but I like the taking it in fully. There's clarity in in just memorizing. Yeah. You know, you're not making a story of it yet. Yeah, I guess that's right. That's true. So it's honesty. Also, you just honestly memorize the text without putting your thought into it yet. But then he does examine the meaning, examines the meanings of the teaching that he has memorized. So this is not blind faith. You're supposed to examine the meaning and decide, does this make sense to me? Uh, Is it something that's really worth 
practicing. Now that I, I thought it was, I had faith, and now I've heard it, and I'm thinking about it. See if it makes sense. And then, what happens after that? So he gains a reflective acceptance. So it's, the idea is that, he, that you're supposed to come to some agreement that this is worthwhile. You know, that's maybe, so maybe there's the faith, which is kind of emotional, and then there's the cognitive component. And I, I think it's very interesting. One interpretation is that the Buddha is saying you have to have your different parts of your mind have to accept this. You have to accept it in your heart, and you have to accept it more with the cognitive. Now, they, this is a Western thing for me to say it that way. They didn't really separate heart and mind that much. The word citta can mean heart or mind. And they never really, they didn't have this problem of the brain and the heart and the thoughts and the emotions. It was all just kind of mind. But for us, we, we are aware that there are these different channels. Maybe we could say it that way, different channels of understanding. Okay, so then what happens? What happens after he accepts it? What are the next couple of steps? And then zeal springs up. Mm-hmm. So zeal, boy, that's not always a good word in religion, right? Zealot. Um, but I think the the implication is um, is what? Well, what does zeal mean to you? What is that? What do you think is going on here? Well, at least enthusiasm. Yeah, enthusiasm. So there's that bright, uh, excited energy, and many of us. Maybe we're feeling it now, <laughs> yes, <laughs> or have felt it. And it comes and goes at different times in practice, but uh, it's a beautiful quality to really have that sense of enthusiasm, and it's very inspiring to see people that are just have, have drunk in the Dharma and are just so excited about putting it into practice. And sure enough, the next step is he applies his will. Um, so will, you know, this is effort, right? And, and, the Buddha never says that you can do this without effort, as far as I know. Uh, they're very, I mean, never is too strong, but he's big on, on effort, <laughs> let's say it that way. Um, more often, he talks about needing to bring effort and energy. Now, we don't hear that quite as much in the West because my understanding from talking, from hearing this said by Western teachers is that um, Westerners have come with a kind of a wound-up, uh, uh, ambitious kind of mind <laughs> to practice, and that sometimes um, we, we're spending too much time pushing and doing and trying in our lives, and what we really need from practice first is to stop. <laughs> and so there are a lot of teachings about relaxing, about letting go, about tranquility, um, kind of as a prerequisite <laughs> to um, being able to sit, uh, just sit successfully and uh, be, you know, have some presence of mind. But when you read these original texts, um, a lot of it is about striving and effort, kind of more than might be healthy for us in the West sometimes. But this is what the original texts say, and it's worth knowing that. I'm a, I'm a kind of a traditionalist. I think if Gil says, if you're going to deviate from the original teachings, you should know what you're deviating from. And it's true, we have changed some things here in the West, uh, in the Insight Movement, Spirit Rock, IMS. They don't teach exactly what is in these texts, but if you're going to do that, it's nice to know what you're deviating from. I, I would agree with that, having read some of these earlier texts, at least the translations of them. I would say 
strive is more of a devotion. Oh yeah. So you see, striving is related to From devotion. The heart. Yes. Yeah. So a person is putting their whole being into their practice. Right. That's right. a beautiful way to say it. Yeah. 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 That's the next step. And then. <laughs> um, so he scrutinizes and then he strives. Scrutinizing um, another kind of attention-focused word. Um, uh, but this, does anyone have an idea of what this may refer to? Discerns. I should say scrutinize. Maybe discerns. Of, yeah. yeah. So observing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, brings to mind, um, a component of right effort where you're looking at the fetters and the hindrances and you're kind of learning the teachings and you're scrutinizing how they, um, the fetters and the hindrances come up and what you can do as they come up. Yeah, that's great. So that's making it very specific because you know of other uh, practice instructions. I think that I think all of these are good. Is the scrutinizing has to do with the insight part of practice, the observational Part. Um, so he scrutinizes his experience, he scrutinizes his mind, um, the, he may scrutinize the hindrances that are arising and what is causing them and therefore be able to uh, learn how his mind works and start to let them go. I think these are, yeah, these are fantastic. So then he strives, he puts his whole heart in, resolutely striving, and then we get this interesting phrase, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. Oof. Any thoughts on that? No, I was really struck by realizes it with the body. Uh-huh. Uh, That's very interesting, I, isn't it? I would love to have you unpack it or somebody unpack it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe fortunately we don't quite have time. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, it's, it's true, actually, we are nearing um, 9 o'clock, and I wanted to say a few more things. But I love that you've picked out that phrase, realizes with the body. Um, it, I, don't, I don't actually know what this means, um, for sure. I don't know that there is a clear meaning. Yeah. Maybe just that it, you have to learn it like experientially. Yeah. Intellectually. Yeah. One could say that this points toward experiential learning as opposed to intellectual. Um, I think that's a very reasonable interpretation. Um, but we can observe, I mean, what I see another way to relate to this as is to say, well, okay, I don't know exactly what that means. I have an idea that it refers to experiential learning. But maybe what I'll do is I will practice these steps that are offered. And at some point, uh, I will have a better idea based on my own experience um, what this refers to specifically. And I have some ideas from having done, uh, just from the practice I've done so far. And my guess is that they would be different. 10 or 20 years from now. Um, I don't think we need to know exactly what everything means. Uh, these are words describing something that is eventually not describable in words, but there's a lot of pointing, ways of pointing towards it. So we could see these, this phrase as not so much attempting to analyze and tell us what something is, but it could be more like the poetry where the words are meant to evoke something or to point the mind towards something and 
you know, ultimately these teachings are aiming at getting the mind into the state where it can do something very different that's <laughs> not describable. And so the trick is how to get it there. And there's all kinds of methods for pointing. And often these uh, phrases like this, I think, are pointers in some way. Um, I have also found that the images, this isn't maybe the best example, but there are, there are literal uh, metaphorical images in the text that are very beautiful, like uh, descriptions of the concentration states that are likened to uh, water. You know, there's you know, this underground spring that, that suffuses the whole lake and so forth. And, or there are images of anger as a red hot iron ball that one has swallowed, for example. And you know, you just get these images that are so visceral, and they have a, an impact when reading them. And I have found that through practice, some images are incredibly apt. Like I, I read them and I thought, oh, that's nice. You know, that's a that's a nice poetic way of saying that. And then I had an experience in meditation. I'm like, oh, I know why that was was written that way. And even though it's not nothing is you know it's not literal, but when I read the metaphor, I say, oh, I get the experience does indeed evoke words like that. And so, um, and it's happened enough times that I, I can say with a little bit of confidence that I think these these images that are used do refer to things that are still happening in the minds. Our minds are not so different from people 2,600 years ago that these phrases can still work, even when translated, that really that are referred to meditative experiences. And then that, for me, increases my confidence and my faith. And I feel, ah, this really is, uh, does work. <laughs> and it really you know, aims at something that, that is experienced. It's also pretty cool to read something that was described 2,600 years ago and find that my mind works the same way. Wow. (laughs) Different culture, halfway across the world, completely different world that they lived in compared to cell phones, cars, computers, um, Western thought, (laughs) Judeo-Christianity, you know, etc. And yet, he, the Buddha could point to qualities of the mind and heart that can be developed through simple things like sitting down and watching your breath. It's fabulous. I love this. This is my inspiration in the sutta. This is what gets me going about the suttas. It's like, this is so amazing. This could happen. This could, we could get this window into a different world that touches us and can transform us so much later. It's really beautiful. So that's what we have for tonight. That is not at all an overview of the whole system of training, but we looked at the Eightfold Path in two different forms, and we looked at another entirely, entire complete system of training from faith in a teacher to uh, glimpsing the truth uh, that doesn't talk about the Eightfold Path. And there are yet other ones that are similar. So there's a lot of paths described. Um, So I hope... um, this maybe gives an idea that there's a lot in the suttas and that we get a filtered version of it uh, in a lot of the general teachings that we get. But it's a pretty good filtration, I have to say, from what I've seen. Um, so I would like to suggest, it says homework at the bottom of your sheet. <laughs> um, this is optional, we're all adults, but if, you know, it would be helpful if you wanted to um, 
look at some things by next week, then we'll talk about them. So there's a nice essay here, first of all, on a site called Access to Insight, which is a wonderful website that has a lot of the teaching. Now, I won't say a lot, actually, it's not that much of the Pali Canon, but a lot of the key texts of the Pali Canon have been translated. A lot of the translations are by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, but there are other ones too. And it's been compiled by this amazing bodhisattva of a person. Oops, that's not in the Theravadan tradition. <laughs> no, it is, but anyway. Um, he doesn't do it, he doesn't update it anymore. Um, but uh, for many years he worked on this, and it's a huge collection. And he wrote this lovely essay. The URL says befriending.html. He wrote this lovely essay called Befriending the Suttas. And it talks about kind of his relationship to the suttas and how. And I, it's. You might develop your own. You may not decide some things are different and important to you. But I, I liked the way he described how he reads the suttas. So I offer it as uh, one way that people have approached them. And then if you're interested, you can review the above suttas. I think most of them are on access to insight, if you would like. Um, you might want to read all of MN70, which is the one that this last one came from, because the context of it is very different then this is the core teaching that's embedded in that sutta. Well, there's a couple different teachings, but that's one of them. And the, the kind of wrapper around that, if you will, the context of it is a, a, a whole different scene. It's about bhikkhus violating one of the Buddha's instructions on, on when to eat. <laughs> um, so it's a nice story. And then there's a different gradual training described in MN27, if you're interested in a different version of this gradual training teaching that he offers. Um, and then the ones that we'll talk about next week, don't get overwhelmed by the way, these are all pretty short. Uh, the ones that we'll talk about next week are SN, Samyutta Nikaya 5537, Mahanama. I'm going to bring that one because it's unless you have the book, it's hard to find online. There's a whole bunch called Mahanama, it turns out. Um, DHP is Dhammapada. Chapter 6, that one is surely online. You can find it online. Chapter 6, The Sage. MN48, I'm, I'm making you guys go into all these different books. So, Majjhima Nikaya 48, which is a story, the Kosambians, is a story about a big argument that broke out in a Sangha, and the whole Sangha almost fell apart by all this uh, infighting among the, Buddha, among the monks. <laughs> and then AN... Angutra Nikaya 3121, Purity. That one I'm also, I believe I'm also going to give you, because um, I don't know if it's online. It's, I don't even know if we'll get to that one. This is a lot to cover in an hour and a half. But these are um, all on a theme, and next week's theme um, is living a life of Dhamma. So these are um, particular suttas that I've picked out that relate to how does one live as a layperson or as a monk if one is making the Dhamma the basis of one's life. So it's about um, community behavior, uh, being a good citizen, and it's also about living with wisdom. Like, how do you live when your values are different from the mainstream societal values? Because in case you hadn't noticed, the things that are offered on this spiritual path are not what you see on the billboards and on the TV commercials and <laughs> stuff like that. Those encourage a different kind of value system. So there's questions about how do you live that way and still have a job or a family 
Um, and there are sutta, the Buddha, this was a problem even in the Buddhist time for people. So there are suttas where he talks about managing that. Um, so I've collected these four, obviously there could be more. Um, but I, and I will bring uh, the first and the last on printed sheets. The other ones are a little longer anyway. So have a look at those if you're interested during the week. There's no reason you can't just leap in and start reading suttas and you'll get the pattern and we'll have a chance to talk again. We're a little after. Um, are there any final comments or questions before? I, I yeah. missed the difference between the big N, S N and the small S. Big S, big N is Samyutta Nikaya. It's this big Nikaya book, The Connected mm -hmm. Discourses. Sutta S, big S, little N is Sutta Nipata, which is one of the books of the Kudika Nikaya. Um, I can point them out on your sheet. They're both listed on the, um, if you want. I can pull them out on your handout. Did you say we can, we could locate these at this website? Most of these are going to be on Access to Insight. And uh, thank you for mentioning that. I wanted to say also that all of these books are in the IAMC library. And, you know, you can't... Um, check them out because they're like the reference books in the library, but you can go to IMC anytime it's open and uh, sit in the library and read these. Um, reading through uh, probably the longest, the longest one of these is MN48, the Kosambians. It's about a four or five page story in, in one of these. So, you know, you could get through it pretty fast, but you may want to do it more than once. Anyway, all these books are available to you. Um, and if you, yeah, and some of the some of the texts will be online. I'll give my little pitch. I really like the books. Um, I know it's printed books, it's paper. Why not do it online where it's so much more environmental? But I find that you know, just like in a regular book or in the dictionary or something, um, when I'm looking in the book, I look up the one that I want, and then I get interested in the one that's just after it, <laughs> and I read that one too, and then. You know, I think, oh, this is interesting, or there's a footnote. By the way, these have footnotes, and Bhikkhu Bodhi has all these, or endnotes. They're very interesting endnotes, and so then I read that, right? And those aren't always on the, um, on the online version. So I think there's something. Also, if you read online, you, if you just, like, put in the search box, MN48, and that one comes up, and then the next thing you put in is DHP Chapter 6, and that one comes up, you just click right to that one. Whereas if I'm reading this book, then I know I'm in this book, I'm, I'm doing this, and then I'm going to switch to the Dhammapada, and I pick up that, and it's a different thing. And over time, I develop a sense of what's in each book. Whereas if I'm looking at individual suttas online, I, never, I will never get that sense. I will never learn what's in each collection. And somehow for me, as a kind of a traditionalist, I think it's important to, to have them divided in your mind in the same way that they were divided in the books by the people who created them. But that, you, know, you may not agree with me after you've been through this course. You say, that's just Kim's conservatism. I think it's fine, and that would be fine. <laughs> but I'll just tell you how I feel. So, thank you. Thank you. Oh, there is, yeah. <laughs>